0: Jesus, what you did on our behalf on that cross. And now, God, we pray that you would speak to us. You would move our hearts. You would open our hearts to hear from you, God. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower me, fill me, even now, O God, to speak your word, that Christ might be exalted. And God, as a result, our lives would be gospel-saturated. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, uh, Doug Nichols preached uh, an excellent word. And uh, one of my favorite stories was the one when he shared being in the doctor's office with his doctor. And his doctor, uh, who did not believe in Jesus Christ, he's actually kind of hostile toward God, his doctor asked him what he had been up to, and he mentioned he had gone to Mexico to visit, to visit street children. And while in Mexico, he, he got a tour of the sewer system by these kids, and uh, he down, went down through one way and came up through a manhole in the middle of a busy street. And his doctors is just wondering, okay, what are you doing? You have cancer, you're sick, what are you doing putting yourself in danger like that? And then Nicholas went on to tell him, because well, these kids need the gospel. And if you recall, what did the doctor ask him? He said, what what is the gospel? And Doug Nichols joked, here he is, naked with his uh, hospital gown on, telling his doctor, a world-renowned oncologist, about the gospel. That's a good question to ask, isn't it? What is the gospel? Just two weeks ago, Pastor Ralph sent an email out to us here at Good News Bible Church. By the way, if you did not get the email, that means you're not on the email list, so you can update your information with the card, um, email the church, because what Pastor Ralph has been doing the last several weeks is defining the gospel as the Bible defines it. And he asks the question, what is the gospel? And he responds, you would think this would be an easy topic to address since it's foundational to the Christian life. The fact is that getting people to agree on an answer to this question is not easy. And from there, he went on to talk about what the gospel is. It's an important question, because there are many ideas of what the gospel is in our day and age. People use adjectives to define the gospel, but these adjectives don't, don't do it any justice, because they, what it does is takes it away from the cross. John 3.16 is often looked at as the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5 tells us God demonstrates His own love toward us and while we were still sinners Christ died for us. The gospel can be defined as the good news and that's what it is. And the good news is this that although we we're bound to sin, slaves to sin, God provided a way to be reconciled with Him. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to die on a cross, to satisfy the wrath of God directed towards sin, and to reconcile us with God. Jesus rose from the dead, and by us trusting in Him, we can have forgiveness, peace with God, and the hope, then, of eternity. That's the Gospel. The gospel, although it's it's still not a static word, it's not a one-time event. It's dynamic. It's not simply a prayer or a word on a page. But the gospel has demands. It is professed, but it is also acted out. It is living and hope-giving. It is not to be twisted. It is not to be tread upon. It is not to be tampered. It is not to be taken advantage of. It is to be praised and embraced. And because of that, because we are God's people, we ought to be gospel people. And as gospel people, we ought to be gospel-saturated people. Well, today we begin a new series from the book of Titus. And we've titled it, Gospeling. Titus and the Gospel-Saturated Life. Now, if you open up your Western's Dictionary, you're not going to find the word gospeling. We, we made it up. What we wanted to do, though, was convey a truth. That this word gospel is not just some idea, but has implications on our lives. So gospeling is gospel living. And that's what Titus is telling us about. That we are to of live gospel-saturated lives so that the truth that Jesus died for us impacts every aspect of our lives and influences everything that we do. But what does the gospel-saturated life look like? What does it look like to have a gospel-saturated life? Well, that's what we're going to turn to, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 40, to see what it means to have a gospel-saturated life. Would you turn your Bibles there if you haven't yet? The book of Titus was written by Paul, not Titus. It was written by Paul to a man named Titus. Now, we're not exactly sure the... Uh, Of when this letter was written but what we know is in Acts 28 the last chapter in the book of Acts we find Paul in prison in the city of Rome and from the book of Titus we gather that Paul was probably released at some point made it to this island in the Mediterranean Sea called Crete and he was there with Timothy and with Titus Paul preached the gospel there with these two missionary friends and people from the island of Crete Cretans they trusted Jesus Christ And a church was formed there in this island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, for one reason or another, we're not sure exactly why, Paul had to leave the island, and he left with Timothy. But because there were these baby Christians there, he didn't want to leave this church by themselves. He didn't want to abandon them. So he tells Titus, Titus, your responsibility is to stay here in Crete. And he gave him specific instructions of what he was supposed to do. Paul left Crete, and sometime later he writes Titus a letter... To reiterate the things that he wanted him to do. Look at verse 5 in Titus chapter 1. Paul tells Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. One of Titus' main responsibilities was to establish godly leadership in the island of Crete, it was to establish leadership that would protect the flock, that would feed the flock. Yeah, we disciple of the flock chapter 2 is all about discipleship and Paul tells Titus this is what you need to establish here in this local church also in the book is this gospel saturatedness every chapter talks about what our salvation is and how we are to live in light of it there is a gospel saturated theme that weaves in and out of the book of Titus and it finds its origins in our text for today in verses 1, one through 1-4 now, before I read, it, I need to warn all of you English and grammar teachers. This is going to make you want to pull out your red pen. He says four verses in my ESV makes up 92 words. It's one sentence, linked together by different prepositions. And you know, if I turned this in in school, they my teachers would have circled things, put periods there and there. But Paul wouldn't do that because each idea links upon the other, and it's, you get the sense that a period here. Would break up his train of thought. So, what we have is a glorious display of what it is to have a gospel saturated life. So, read with me, or follow with me as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. What did it mean for the Apostle Paul to lead a gospel-saturated life? Well, in the opening few words, we see that for Paul, the gospel-saturated life meant a new identity. He opens up saying, Paul, a servant of God. That's his identity. I am a servant of God. Now, some of your Bibles might have a note there next to the word servant. And if you take it to the footnote, what we learn is that the Greek word here for servant is better translated Slave. Paul is calling himself a slave of God. You know, most of our English Bibles don't pick that up. And probably because culturally the idea of a slave is really taboo in light of what our country has gone through. But Paul is writing in the first century here. And the idea of a slave is not that nice either. But if God is your master, Paul gladly says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of God. John MacArthur wrote a book recently called Slave. And in that book he shares stories of early Christian martyrs who had that reality in their minds that by calling yourself a Christian, you're calling yourself a slave of God. Many of us like to use the word or say, Jesus Christ my Lord. The word Lord is just a synonym for master. And by calling him a master, you're you're saying that you are his slave. And this is part of our identity. This is what's central to the gospel-saturated life. That at the very basic level, we are slaves of God. We've been changed by the gospel, and that is what we are. I want us to turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, because I want to stay in this point for a little bit. You can put a marker in Titus 1, because we'll be back to that in just a moment. Romans chapter 6 is a wonderful text that explains what it means to be a slave. And what we're going to see is that Paul says in Romans 6 is that all of us are slaves whether you like it or not. We're all slaves. You are a slave. Now the question is, to whom? And that's what Paul wants to draw our attention to. Look at verse 16 of Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So you're obeying someone or something. And these are the options. He says, Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He goes on in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And that's the gospel. It is the gospel truth. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were uh, once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... As children of God, present your members, your bodies, as slaves to righteousness, leading in sanctification. Go to verse 22. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, you used to be slaves to sin before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But you're not that anymore. You're now a slave of God. And he goes the next step further, saying because we are slaves of God, our lives will be led in sanctification, which means holiness. The fact that we are slaves has an influence in the walk that we walk, in the life that we live. And Paul says, if we're people-saturated people, if we're people who've been changed by God, if we're no longer slaves of sin, then we're slaves of God. And as slaves of God, we'll do anything to please Him. Driven by love, whatever the cost, wherever He would want us to go, whatever He would want us to sacrifice, no matter how the world might look at us for doing it, we're slaves of God. God, You are my Master. I want to please You with all of my life. And that's going to have repercussions in every aspect of our lives. From the grand scale to the even smaller things. So that as sisters in Jesus Christ, for all you ladies, you think, how does my life reflect the fact that I am a slave of God? How does my wardrobe reflect that God is my master and it is Him I want to please and not the eyes of others? For that reason, Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Because that's what it means to be a slave of God. Saying, God, you are the one I want to fear and love and please, and I'm not going to worry about what others think of me. I'm yours, God. For all you brothers, because you're a slave of God, your hunger is for holiness, it is for integrity. It is to be a man of character, a man of purity. Or as James 1, 19 and 20 says, that you would be a man who is slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, knowing that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, this is what it means to be a slave of God. God, you're the one I want to please, and I'm going to put a rein on my life, because I am not my own, as First Corinthians tells us. You've been bought with a pri- price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we've been set free from sin. We're not slaves of sin. We're slaves of God. He is our identity. You know, so often many professional athletes have a huge identity crisis when they retire. I heard a a segment on the radio recently where there's a whole field of psychiatry just for athletes. Because for all their lives, they have based their identity on their craft of playing a sport when age caps, uh, keeps, uh, catches up to them, they can't perform as they used to. They've got to retire. But for the last 20, 30 years, their life has been football or baseball or basketball. And now they have none of that. I fully believe that's why so many retire and they come back and they retire and come back. One that we all know of, especially. Because they can't let go of that identity and we have identity crisis at that point, when it's in something or someone else other than God. Where's your identity today? Is it in your career? Is it in your car? Your home? Do you pride yourself in your children? Now, these could be all good things, but is that where your identity is to be? And even in Christian circles, it's the oddest thing how we, we have identities that are other than Christ. How we, we talked in our membership class yesterday, how many of us were asked, what, what, what do you believe? And we say, many of us say, well, I'm a Baptist. That's not your identity. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a slave of God. The temptation of Christian circles, I went to such and such a school. So-and-so was my professor. So-and-so baptized me. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England. And after he passed away, many took pride saying, I was baptized by the doctor. Referring to Martin Lloyd-Jones. What does that mean? I'm a slave of God. That's my identity. And that's what Paul saying is the beginning of a gospel-saturated life. So he starts out saying, Paul, a servant of God, a slave of God, that's who I am. That's my identity. And where's yours? Well, the gospel-saturated life begins with a new identity, but it also begins with a new purpose in life, a new mission. Look at the next statement. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul calls himself an apostle, and that's his purpose, that's his calling. As an apostle, that means that he was one who was sent by God with a message in the broad sense. And in the narrow sense, it means he witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. That's what he was called to do then, was take that message to others. Now, if you recall, what was Paul's old mission, his old purpose in life? Well, we see in Acts 7, 8, and 9 that Paul was a persecutor of the church. His purpose in life was set on destroying the church, arresting Christians, approving of the execution of Christians as we see in Acts 8 with the life of Stephen. That was Paul's old purpose. But since God transformed him, he's got a new mission. And that which he once wanted to destroy, he now was building up and expanding the church of Jesus Christ. Let us think about what our mission was apart from Jesus. Or if today you stand as one who doesn't know Jesus as your Savior, as the one who died for you to give you life. What is your purpose in life? There are many things we bank on in life. And maybe you weren't or are not a persecutor of the church. But Philippians 3 comes to mind when Paul is in tears saying he, he's grieved of those who are enemies of the cross. He says that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their God was their belly, their appetite. Whatever they wanted to satisfy themselves with apart from God was, became their God. And Paul said that was their ambition. And it led to destruction. And that they boasted in things that were shameful. Well, what's your purpose in life? Paul's purpose now, his calling now, was as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, the word elect for some of you guys is like licking a battery or nails on a chalkboard. Say, like, I don't want to hear about God choosing people, but it's here. <laughs> Paul says that God called them as an apostle for the sake of God's elect, his chosen ones. Now a lot of us have a hard time with this because we have a wrong perspective of God. We think of God as the little machine in the movie Toy Story. If you recall those little green aliens, the squeaky ones, they're in this machine where the claw comes down and picks them up. And we think, this is kind of how God is. He's, he's this claw who randomly just comes in and, and grabs one. And the aliens are all like, oh, pick me. And, you know, as one gets picked, they say, you have been chosen. And they're just so thrilled about that. And we think, this, this is what it means. This is what, this is what election is. This is what God's choosing people is. But, but this is anything but the truth. God is not some random, impersonal claw that randomly snatches. God is love. God loves His people. And all of us, were on a straight path to hell. And God in His mercy has chosen us, not randomly, but according to His loving kindness. And we are nothing like those aliens who are saying, pick me, pick me. No, we have our eyes to the heavens apart from God, we're not saying, God, choose me, but shaking our fist and saying, God, we don't want you. That's the condition of the natural human, per, human being. It's hostility toward God. So when Paul says, I've been called for the faith of the elect, this is a word of encouragement, of mercy, and of God's love. Saying God had raised up Paul to bring the faith, to bring the gospel to people that God has chosen to be part of his family in mercy. And if it's still like licking a battery to you, I do want to challenge you to take Titus 1, put it down in a room at home, be in a quiet place, Get on your knees and I'm serious. And say, God, I'm having a hard time with what this means. Help me love it. Because this is what you've done. This is you, God. I can't not love your ways and try to love you, God. I need to love you and your ways. Paul says he was called for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now think about the faith. This is, this is the gospel message. He was called so that he could bring the gospel to these people. This was his life's purpose to bring the gospel to point people to God. Paul's conversion was so dramatic. He was an enemy of God, and now he's in love with God. And he wants others to love God and to put their faith in him. He says, God's raised me up for this purpose. This is my gospel-saturated life to take the good news of Jesus dying on our behalf as our substitute lamb to give life for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That they would come to know Jesus. That they would know Him. That's what drove Paul. He He wanted people to know Jesus Christ. That was his desire. But he said it's also... For the knowledge of the truth. See, Paul had a realization that the gospel comes and changes our lives when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But there's an ongoing knowledge of the truth we need to embark on. We need to know what we believe, as Paul Little says. And this is what the gospel-saturated life is about. It's not, like I said, a a, a moment in time But it's a lifestyle, it's a growth in the knowledge of who God is. To think about Isaiah 6 and see that God is on his throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. That's knowledge of the truth, knowledge of who God is. And we'll be driven to to know God better. I think of Pastor Wilson in Liberia. I talked with him this past uh, Friday for about an hour on the phone. And I just hear his excitement because he has an understanding of this very point. There are many believers in Liberia, many pastors who love God, who have faith in Jesus Christ, but their knowledge of the truth is just really shallow. And his burden is that they will grow in the knowledge of the truth. So as he sends emails, he says, we need resources, we need teaching, we need prayer, we need you to come, we need people to come and teach us. He just pleads for that because he knows that the gospel saturated life is, yes, faith, but it's also growing in the knowledge of the truth. And we need to be people who are committed to that as individuals and then to bring others along to walk with us in our growth of who God is. But Paul has a third element there. He says he's called for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth, and then he adds which accords to godliness. Again, as we place our faith in Jesus, as we grow in the knowledge of Him, as we see God in His holiness, it has a change in our lives. We've been given a new mind so we don't think the ways we used to think. We've been given a new heart so the things that cater to our affections are God-centered. We've been given a new mind so we want to honor God. New lips so our speech is pure. And these things are in accordance with godliness. That's the gospel message. That we would walk in godliness. And that's Paul's mission here. He who was once a persecutor of the church is now a builder of the church. Seeing people come to faith, grow in knowledge, and walk in godliness. We need to be people who commit to the same. Commit to the faith that we profess. Commit to knowing the God that we love. Commit to walking in holiness to please the God that we love. And that means discipleship. It means us doing, it, it means us walking with others. Think about that. Would you commit to that today? Commit to living out the gospel in your life and bringing others along with you. The gospel-saturated life for Paul meant that he had a new identity now as a slave of God. He had a new mission now, one who built the church. And he also had a new hope. He had a new hope. In verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The very foundation of the hope of the Gospel is this reality that God has promised eternal life. He has promised eternal life. We have the hope of eternity. Now Paul lists three things that we could bank on our hope because of God. There's three things there. He says, first, God does not lie. God doesn't lie. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. What does it say about people who lived in the city of Crete? Look at verse 12. It says, one of your prophets himself says it, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what does Paul say? This testimony is true. The people in Crete had a reputation of being dishonest. They were liars. And Paul had now established a church there and Paul's telling them, you know, you might be accustomed to lying and you don't maybe, maybe don't trust people because what you know is lying. And Paul's saying, that's not God. God doesn't lie. So when he told you that eternal life is yours, who placed your faith in him, God doesn't lie. So the first thing is, God doesn't lie. But the second thing, God promised it. You can bank on God's promises because he will fulfill them. There's no reason to doubt God's promises. Paul says, God has promised to make this happen. To give you eternal life. Now some of us might have been scarred in life by those who've broken promises, who've lied to us. And then we import those scars on God. And let me just plead with you. That's not the God you serve. That's not the God that Paul worships. That's not the God who gives us the gospel. He's a God who doesn't lie. He's a God who keeps His promises. He won't let you down. In this life, you may face trials of many kinds, but Jesus says, take heart because I've overcome the world. And you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. So you can hope in Him. So God doesn't lie. God promised. And the third thing, God made it happen. He made eternal life happen now. Look, He says in verse 3, And at the proper time, meaning now God manifested in His Word, that's the gospel preached, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. What he's talking about is God made eternal life possible through His Word, through His gospel, through Jesus' death on the cross. Eternal life is promised to us and there's no doubting God already made it happen in Christ Jesus. What a blessing. I met a couple on a train this morning. I got on the train. I could tell they... They had a hard life. I went and sat by them and I asked them, I said, How are you guys doing? I said, Okay. I said, Where are you heading? I said, Well, just right in the blue line here. I said, Would you like a banana? I, I took one banana. And I said, I want you guys to know that, that Jesus loves you and that God, that God wants to give you hope in this life, He'll forgive you of your sins. And they were just really grateful for the conversation. We prayed together on the the train there at the Belmont stop. And as I got off the train, I started thinking, "This, this this is the gospel message. It rests on the hope of eternal life, which was made possible by the death of Jesus Christ, which now then, we proclaim that all people might come to know Him. And that's our prayer. That's what Paul's mission was about that's what his gospel saturated life was about that's what his hope was about The gospel saturated life for Paul meant a new identity he's a slave of God not of sin it meant a new mission he no longer was a persecutor of the church but he's one who was committed to the gospel and seeing people come to know Jesus and grow in their faith it also meant a new hope a sure hope that is that is Sure, based on God's promise that God wouldn't lie and that God already made it possible. But the gospel-saturated life also means for Paul a great responsibility. Look what he says there at the end of verse 3. Well, let's start at the beginning. He says, At the proper time God manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul was entrusted with the gospel. God said, Paul, this is the message, and it's for you to proclaim. I'm commanding you to do this. And Paul felt the weight of that responsibility. And he gave his life to that call. And it's pretty ridiculous to think that in the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there were people who questioned Paul's commitment to Jesus, his sincerity, his motive. And he lays down his criteria, his, his, uh, his resume, if you will, for being a servant of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. Now, what he doesn't say, he doesn't lay down his education. He, he doesn't lay down his grand accomplishments. But he says, he lists his sufferings. Second Corinthians 11 verse 24 says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul was entrusted with the gospel and these things he went through to get the gospel out to people. He was committed to this. He felt that responsibility. Got to Paul, this is the gospel. This is your life. What are you going to do with it? And he gave up everything, everything to get that message out. Do you feel the weight of the responsibility? Because in the same way that it was for Paul, the gospel has been entrusted to you. The gospel has been entrusted to you. Jesus said, go therefore make disciples of all nations. That's your job. That's your job. That's my job. That's our job as the body of Christ. What what drove Paul to this? I mean, why did Paul give up so much for the gospel? Well, as already stated, the gospel is the good news. And there is no good news apart from God. God is the good news. Or as John Piper's News book so aptly states it. God is the Gospel. God is the Gospel. And when Paul's entrusted with the Gospel, he's entrusted with the message of God. And what better thing is there in life than to give ourselves for God? It's your identity. You're his slave. It's your mission. You're called to preach it. It's your hope. He promised that he won't lie. He's already accomplished it by the cross. And now it's your responsibility, brothers and sisters of Good News Bible Church. It's your responsibility, it's our joyful responsibility to live gospel-saturated lives. So as we go forth today, what does the gospel mean to you? Does it mean that you are a slave of God? Does it mean that God dictates the purpose of your life? Does it mean that your hope is in God and you can bank on that? Does it mean that you take what God has entrusted to you and you radically live it out that others might know Him? God is the gospel and it's the triune God of the Bible we serve. And I want to state that because Titus, the book of Titus states that. If you look at the end of verse 3, that Paul is entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. He accomplished our salvation. But then he says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Well, verse 3 says God is our Savior. Verse 4, Jesus is our Savior. If jumps to chapter 3, verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared... Look down at the end of verse 6. Whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul is using interchangeably that God is our Savior and Jesus is our Savior. And then in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says that there's washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul had a, a grand view of who God was. That God, that Jesus is God, that the Father is God, that the Spirit is God. And that this triune God has entrusted us the message to make him known to the ends of the earth. What a beautiful picture we have here. Paul's gospeling, living out the gospel. Would that be our life's aim here? To be people, beloved. Gospel-saturated people living the gospel, God-centered lives. Would you bow with me? Oh, God, there is so much to praise you for. God, we identify ourselves as slaves of you, oh God, our great master. God, You've created us and placed us here in Chicago this 2011 for a purpose and that's to live sold out for You based upon the hope of eternal life. And God, we can bank on that. God, but we as Good News Bible Church be gospel saturated. Lord, I do pray even now, Lord, for those who who don't know what it means to be children of God. Lord, I'm reminded of John 1.12, which tells us that to those who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And God, if there are any today who have not received You, who have not believed in Your name, and who are not children of God, I pray today that they would do that. That they would embrace what You offer, God and live with the joy of a God-centered, gospel-saturated life. Oh Lord, as we sing this last song, let our voices be lifted high in worship of you, for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.